Good morning. So I'll give you a little heads up. I have a bit of a head cold, so if I have to cough or something like that, I have some water here to help me just in case. But So I just want to begin by uh, trying to sensitize or reorient us about where, where we are in terms of what I've been talking about for the last six weeks or so. And I'll just begin with this. Uh, yesterday, I did Tim Hilliard's funeral um, at uh, Psycho Funeral Home yesterday. And, um, and so, you know, those are always very sobering things. And from a pastor's point of view, um, I, I mean, I, I can tell you honestly that it's always an honor and it's sacred ground when somebody asks, asks you to do a funeral service for their loved one. It's a, it's a special place in a person's life. And, and, uh, and they tend to remember everything that happened that day or that, that brief period, you know, how people were supportive or encouraging things that they may have said, that kind of stuff. Now, I didn't hardly know uh, anyone there. I mean, I, I certainly knew the Hilliards uh, and the Potts families, and, and that would be about the extent of it. But as I was there doing that particular service, it's always interesting to me. You know, you've heard me, often heard me say that when I'm out and about in public, I tend not to tell people that I'm a pastor, because when I tell them I'm a pastor, they change their behavior on me. You know, they all of a sudden they try to get more holy or more good or whatever. I don't know what it is, but they, you know, or, or I, I see that, you know, that they, uh, I'll see a different look in their eyes, like guarded, suspicious. <laughs> the truth of the matter is, is that when you, wherever you are, whether you're in your public or whether you're doing funeral services among people, most of whom don't know you or whatever, there is, and there's no question about it, there is a sort of awkwardness to it because most people don't know what to do with a pastor. And the same is true when I do weddings. You know, some, sometimes I will do weddings for people that I don't know. They need somebody to perform the ceremony, and so I do. And, you know, in a very courteous sort of fashion, they invite me to go to the dinner afterwards, and I normally don't go because they're being courteous but it's awkward for them, and they don't know where to seat you. They don't know what table to put you at, you know? And so, and I get that. I mean, it's not offensive to me in the least, because, you know, I mean, they, you know, I mean, in the past, it had been, you know, it had been, you know, some, where they would, they put you at a table where it was the person that they think would be close to approximate, to like, where you are and your values and all that kind of stuff. But, so I, I try to save them that awkwardness. And as I was experiencing that a bit yesterday, because I went to the, the dinner afterwards, um, and, and I mostly kind of stood around a bit um, and talked with some people, um, and I visited with, with Lois and Dawn and Cindy and some others, but I just, I just didn't know anyone there, and they didn't know me, and it was very clear they didn't know what to do with me. And again, that's okay, you know, this, I get that. Um, I... You know, I think I've known some pastors that get offended by it, um, and I'm, I don't feel that way. Um, so 
what, it, what occurred to me as I was experiencing that yesterday, it refreshed in my mind how the stuff that I've been talking about over the last six weeks or so, and about how God wants us to increase what He has given to us, and to produce still more fruit, the truth of the matter is that in like manner, much of the world doesn't know what to do with you either as a believer. So, you know, if you lead with that um, in, in certain uh, social settings or whatever, and, you know, somebody finds out that you're pretty involved in the church or you do Bible studies or all that kind of stuff, then it does change oftentimes the chemistry of the room. And so, you know, one of the things that we have to do as believers is to how to push through that awkwardness. Like a lot of us won't take the extra step that we need to take because it's awkward. It's just hard. We, you know, we don't know what they'll say. We don't know if we'll be rejected. We don't know if we'll make them uncomfortable or, or whatever, as we maybe want to invite them to church or we offer to pray for them, all of those kinds of things. And so, um, and so having talked about all the stuff that I've talked about, I think that's one of the elephants in the room that we have to be aware of. That everyone here, on some level, um, is going to be regarded by a certain segment of the population as odd, different, in some cases even hateful because you're a believer. You know, we Christians are hateful because of what we believe. I don't know if you know that or not, but some of us are. And so on, on the one hand, and on the other hand, you know, um, you know, people are genuinely concerned they might offend you in some way um, because of what they do or how they live or those kinds of things. And so, um, and so well, as we pursue talking more about what it means to um, take the talents that God has given to us and to increase them um, on His behalf, as we continue to talk about what it means to be connected to Christ um, and through Christ and because of Christ produce still more fruit for him in this world in which we live, um, how does that really happen when we have to work through some of these kinds of dynamics that are true of all of us? I mean, and this is to say nothing of, there are some people here who have worked in places where you would not be allowed to have any kind of a Christian thing on your desk or in your cubicle. You know, all of those kinds of things. Um, And so, um, you know, what do we do with that? And and so what I want to say to you is, is that even though, you know, in these texts, these texts are demanding, there's no getting around it, they are hard. Um, that that should compel us even more to figure out how we avail ourselves to people so that we can increase the talents that God has given to us and so that we can 
make the fruit that we produce be more abundant than what it is. Does this make sense to you? So, um, and so what I want to do is take about five minutes or so because uh, we've done a lot. We've talked about a lot and people have been in and out. So I just want to give you just a quick overview of where we've been so far because I want you to track with me because I have said over the course of the six weeks how vitally important all of this is for this church and for the world in which we live. It's vitally important. And so I began this series I began this series asking you, how do you intend to live the balance of your life? How do you intend to live? So I use Psalm 90, verses 12 through 17. So teach us to number our days that we may get or gain a heart of wisdom. And that is what this series is about. Trying to provide a, a... trying to provide for you how to get a heart of wisdom. How to get a heart of wisdom about how you will live out the remainder of your days. Verse 17. Let the favor of the Lord our God be upon us and establish the work of our hands upon us. Yes, establish the work of our hands. And so we want God to establish our work. We want our work to be His work. And how? How is that going to happen for the the remainder of the time that we have left? Maybe some of you remember. How many of you have ever seen Schindler's List? It's really one of the great, great films of our lifetime. And you'll remember that in Schindler's List, he was an industrialist who wanted to make money. And so he contracted with the Nazis basically to get Jews and to have them as slaves, free labor, to produce what it was that he was producing. And over time, his heart changed. And he realized that these Jews were really being oppressed and abused horribly. And so he began to take all the money that he made... And he began to buy these Jews who were working for him. He paid off the Nazis to buy them, to set them free. And if you remember, at the end of the movie, on the railroad tracks, uh, there's this very gripping scene where um, he's bought the last uh, last of the Jews that he could possibly buy, and, he, and he, he collapses in front of some of the Jews and says, I should have done more. I wish I could have done more. You remember that? I'm telling you, that's how most of us are going to be when we stand before the throne. And we're going to be saying to the Lord, I should have done more. I wish I had done more. And that's what these texts are all about. It's all about us asking ourselves the question, how can we do more?
So, as I alluded then, we, we talked about the parable of the talents from Matthew, and now we're in this segment of I am the vines. And so, overall, this is the outline that we've discovered. And, and by the way, I really, would, I really would love for you to raise your hand and ask any question, make any comments, because I think it would be great if we process this together. But in essence, this is the outline. The true believer, number one, belongs to the master that is the father. You belong to him. Everyone in this room belongs to God. You can say what you want to say. You can shake your fist at him. I don't care. The most ungodly person in the world belongs to God. The the most minute thing that exists in this world belongs to God. Everything belongs to him. Number two, that we are chosen by the master slash father for service. That we're not just, you know, created and set loose in the giant playroom to do whatever we want. But that he, (laughs) he chose us to serve him. In fact, again, even the most nominal person in the world, even the, the least Christian person you can think of, their orientation, the way, the purpose for which they've been created was to serve. It's inescapable, and it's predicated on that in many respects that they will be judged. Number three, that everyone here has been specifically crafted and designed. Everyone here. Everyone in this room has their own unique design. And in addition to the design experiences, everyone. You aren't me, I'm not you. you. You live where you live, I live where I live. You work where you work, I work where I work. But it's all designed by God. It's not a mistake. If you believe that you are where God will have you be, then it's part of His design and as a, as a design to serve Him. And you've been specifically gra- crafted. Now, and you've heard me say this before, has there ever been anything that was created that didn't have any purpose? No. You can't create something, would you say? Stink bugs. Stink bugs. (laughs) So everything on this earth that has been created has a purpose, a function. And if it doesn't serve its function, if it doesn't do its purpose, then it usually is harming something else. Usually. If I take something that's been created for one thing and I apply it to something that for which it has not been created, I am probably harming that thing. If we are created for a certain purpose and we don't do that purpose, but we do something else, we are probably harming the purpose of God. Yes. Oh, no, absolutely. And that's the beautiful thing is that God can have everything arranged exactly as He wants it and still give humankind complete and utter free will. And we can do whatever we do, and it will never frustrate the ultimate purpose of God. That is true sovereignty. 
So we're not talking about fatalism here. There's no fatalism. There's no, there's no theological fatalism. Um, in other words, I, I can create something and say, this is what I want this thing to do. And if that thing is, has autonomy, that is self-rule, um, then, and it does what it, what it wants to do, um, then it runs counter to the purpose for which I created it and probably harms other things that I created alongside of it. And then, as a person who's in control of all of that, then I decide what I'm going to do with that, whether I'm going to let it keep doing what it's doing or take it out of the mix or whatever. But in the end, my, my ultimate purpose for everything for which I've created is still not frustrated. It still comes to pass. So there are some people in, in, the, in the theological world who really embrace a kind of theological fatalism, that, that God has... has is directing absolutely every bit of minutia that takes place. Uh, I don't believe that. I believe God has control over all of that. And it works ultimately to his purpose. But I don't think he... Because if God controlled every bit of minutia, then he would, be, he would be the author of evil, right? Right? So he's not the author of evil. That's right. There's perfect will and there's permissive will. And all that's very complex. I mean, you know, don't forget, we're basically slugs trying to figure out how humans live. Okay? Which is a little, like, challenging, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Oh, Absolutely. Yeah. 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 I spend a lot of time on berms. Uh, you know what I'm saying? I spend a lot of time on the berm of the road. It, it's it's uh, it's a little more treacherous that way, and I probably take some uh, non shortcuts. But yeah, so there's hope. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. But I want us all to come to terms with how how honoring it is that God wants to partner with us in the fulfillment of His work. Now, you know, what one person sees as honor is another person might see as an inconvenience because I want to do what I want to do, right? And that's how much of the world sees it, I think. But, uh, yeah, but certainly there's, 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 hope, there's hope in that. And, uh, and, and, and I, I'm so, and that's where grace comes in. That, you know, that I can still violate the will of God, um, and he's patient with me. Aren't you glad God is patient? I mean, what if, what if God had the patience that you had or I had? Oh, my gosh. Talk about nuke buttons, right? They'd be going off all over the place. And so, you know, so I, yeah, so I, I think that, and I'm so glad we're having this conversation, you're raising these questions, because... When a pastor stands up here and speaks, a lot of times he speaks on things and he assumes certain things, right? And I'm, you're getting at some of the assumptions that I've not yet been able to address, and that's really good. Yes, Sandy? I, I know that it'll fail. Yeah. I know that. I'm yeah. 
Yeah. See, now, look, it's just, it's just, those are just wonderful questions. They're, they are. They're just wonderful questions. Sandy asked the question, how do you know that you're doing God's will? You know, you, you feel like, right, you could, do, you could be doing more, but you're not sure. Um, and, and that's a, I mean, I think that's a wonderfully profound and important question to ask. So, um, and I think that, you know, I think that uh, there's a lot of literature out there on that very question. But I think, you know, the short end of it is, on one hand, uh, I think that the Holy Spirit can be pretty revealing in your prayer life. That as you take the, in other words, even in the Gospel of John, it says, uh, in, this, in, in, uh, in uh, chapter 15, he talks about how, um, I think it's verse 16, Ask the Lord whatever you want, and he will give it to you. So in your prayer time, if you are abiding in Christ, and you are asking, like, what, where do I go from here? Uh, I think over time, there's a, a lot of clarity that comes through prayer. Um, it's sort of like, I don't know if you know this, but in some major harbors, um, there, are, there are three lighthouses. I wish I had a whiteboard here that I could show you, but... So there's a lighthouse in the middle of the harbor, a white house here, a lighthouse here, and a lighthouse here. And ships, when they come into the harbor, line up those three uh, lighthouses. So there's one in the middle, and, and they are an equal distance apart. And when those lighthouses are all an equal distance apart, they know they are exactly in the center of the channel that takes them into the harbor. Does this make sense to you? So, um, so I think that, you know, we do, we do things like, does it line up with Scripture? Does it line up with your prayer and meditation life? Does it line up with what your community would say as well? I've bumped into more than one person who thought they had a gift to do something, and there was no way they had that gift. <laughs> Just didn't have it, okay? Sorry. Um, but it wasn't there. And so, and so I would say that over time, as we're trying to determine what the Lord's will is for our life, that, uh, that you, you could probably exercise those three things. What does, what does Scripture have to say about what it is I think I want to do? What does my prayer life, my meditation life, my journal life, all, my inner life, what does it say that I should be doing? And then what does the community say? The people that I know and trust and love, my fellow believers, what do they say? What do they see in me? How many times has your life been changed when somebody said to you, you know, I see this in you. I think you have this ability, and you didn't see it. Does this make sense? Yeah, that's right. Yeah. So I think, Sandy, that would be a good beginning. And then I think, you know, part of the inner life thing is to study thing. Like, so I think there's a lot of texts out there that are very helpful that you can read that can give you guidance as well. Sometimes people want to do more and God is saying, wait. Right? Yeah. 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 If I recall correctly, I think this is true. I think after Paul was converted, I think he spent 14 years just being discipled before he became, before he really started doing what it was that he was doing. I think that's true. What's that? Well, I don't have 14 years either, but I'm just saying, God was saying to Paul, wait, there's some stuff, you know, I want to come to pass. All right, so uh, just as so long as you know, and this is, this is perfectly fine, 
because I, because I have a whole host of stuff here, but may, giving you this outline is helping me to see what you're thinking and where you are at, and it will help me, um, you know, so let's keep doing this. Um, so then the fourth one is that um, we are cultivated or pruned for optimal production. We are cultivated or pruned. And sometimes we resist that pruning. And I'm going to talk about that later on uh, as I get to it. But pruning is at the very least inconvenient. And in some cases, extraordinarily painful. And if, if, you, if you're a person who really lives out your faith and you really do want to honor God with your life and you do want to produce fruit and you want to increase the talents that he has given to you, you will be pruned. And he will call into question certain things that you may, he may call into question some, some things that you absolutely love. And sometimes, you know, in uh, C.S. Lewis, Lewis's book, um, uh, The Problem of Pain, that would be one of his primary premises. That some Christians experience pain because there's something that needs to be, sep- they need to be separated from in their life. And that pain can be God's sledgehammer. And I have to be honest with you, I think that there were some times in my, night when, in my life when I needed a sledgehammer. I just needed it. That was the only thing that was going to get my attention. But this is probably maybe, this is probably maybe one of the areas that, that, that hold us up the most is the resistance to pruning. Or the anger at God for being pruned. There is some of that too, you know. That God says, look, this is not helpful to you in the production of fruit and the increase in talents. It gets in the way. It siphons off your energy and your ability and your talents. You say, but I love those things. I, well, you may, but I'm just saying to you, the Lord is saying to us, that unless that stuff is pruned, then you can't give me your all. And then there we are, before the Lord. You know, I could have done more, I should have done more. And he might say, you didn't let me prune you. You resisted the pruning that I wanted to bring to your life. There were these distractions. And look, let me just say this to you. Distractions are temptations. I mean, distractions sound pretty innocuous, don't they? Like, you know, like, it's just a distraction. Oh, no. Distractions divert. And any diversion takes time and energy and resources. So what are like some of our distractions? And some of them could be very pleasant. And in the world's eyes, very harmless looking. But that's what they are. I mean... So this pruning thing is really important. 
So God cultivates us. When we submit, when we surrender our life, we submit and surrender to being cultivated and pruned. For optimal production. For optimal production. I'm going to talk a little bit later about um, uh, Paul's thorn in the flesh. He was being pruned. And why was he being pruned? Because Paul was one of those seminal figures. Some historians say that the Apostle Paul was the second most influential person in the history of Western civilization. So how does it begin? In order to keep me humble, or in order that I might not become arrogant or prideful, the Lord gave to me a thorn in the flesh. Because he had seen so many things in his relationship with God, it would be easy for him to be arrogant and prideful. So the Lord sent this thorn in the flesh, and we don't know what it is, to keep him humble. He was being pruned. God is also the one who arranges certain dates and places, abilities and resources in our lives. So we know that he's in charge of all of that. That he has purposed us for fruit, for works of production. And that legitimate service only comes by abiding in Christ. There's a lot of the world out there that think that through that their good works will get them into heaven. My father, every time my brother-in-law, Bob, who was a missionary would come to visit our house. Now look, I want to tell you something. When my dad opened up his wallet, moths flew out, okay? (laughs) And when he opened it up, it was always like this, you know, so nobody else could see what was in there. But when my missionary brother-in-law came to our house to visit, every time my father would reach out and take a $50 bill out and give it to him, the rest of us would pass out in disbelief. But he believed at the time that he was earning salvation points apart from Christ. So even though he gave to the work of Christ, he did not give because of Christ. Does this make sense to you all? And so any, any work that uh, underscores our salvation is a work that emanates from Christ himself by abiding in the vine. So as we abide, because Jesus says, uh, you know, apart from me, you can do nothing. There isn't anything. There's no fruit that you can produce. So there's only legitimate services only through Christ. And finally, in all of these texts that we've read so far, there, there is judgment in regard to the quality and to the amount of fruit that we, because of the quality and the amount of fruit that we reduce. In other words, in other words, true believers produce true fruit. Non-believers do not produce true fruit. So, you know, as, a, as we've talked about this then, uh, as we've, we, we've, we've gone over these texts, 
I hearken back to a series that I did this past fall about a church model that I think is necessary. There will always be some people who come through that door and they will want to know what we are about. There will always be that. But in the near future, there will never be the number of people who come through that door who would have come through that door 20 years ago. Because the world in which we live is gospel-hardened. Now, I'm not saying we give up on the unbelievers, not at all. I'm just saying it's going to be more challenging to reach unbelievers than it ever has been. Um, But none of us here can afford to throw up our hands and say, well, you know, the task is too great, the job is too difficult. So if we're depending on exercising our ministry as a church simply by how many people come through that door, we're going to be pretty disappointed, and I'm afraid God is going to be disappointed too. But if all of us leave here every Sunday morning with a sense of mission, motivated by a surpassing vision of what it is that we can do in our own small way, I think that will make a big difference. And so in this next slide, I've shown this to you before, each and every person here has their little parish. I mean, that's the church right there. And outside these church walls, we all have our own little parish. And I hope that you've been giving thought and prayer about what your parish is. What group of people has God called you to? What group of people has God called you to? Because he has. If you believe, that you are where God wants you to be. Wherever you are, that's your parish. You are light in that place. You are salt in that place. You flavor it with the Christ in you. You drive back the darkness with the Christ who is in you. That's what we do. Do we do that in a way that's offensive or overt or like insensitive? No, no. We do it like Christ would do it. But we do it intentionally. So what I'm saying to you is that, you know, our capacity to reach out to people and really to bring change to their life through Christ isn't probably going to happen predominantly by us being here and waiting for people to walk through and then we surrender a seat or we shake their hand. or what. That, that's a, that can be part of it, but that's not where the primary impact is going to be. The primary impact that we have as a church. And guess what? <laughs> this is how the early church did it anyway. The early church did not have screens. They didn't have worship bands. They didn't have, uh, you know, nifty little small groups. They didn't have pastors who had tattoos and earrings and, 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 you know, who wore girly uh, jeans up front or something like that. They didn't have any of that. They looked kind of old like me, most of them. And then, and then what happened in that church motivated them 
to live Christ-like out in the world in which they found themselves. And then they became salt and light to those people. And over time, they were able to bring the gospel to them. And, to sp- and, and that's the other thing. How many people here would know if somebody said, I want to know Jesus like you know Jesus? Can you help me to know Jesus like you know? What do I need to do? What would you say? <laughs> Frank said, call the pastor. And that would be fine. You could call me. That's perfectly fine. Call me, okay? But people back then knew how to share Jesus with people who were non-believers. And I think it would be really, really, really good if more of us knew how to share Jesus with unbelievers. So one of the things that I'm putting together is a little like ministry manual for our elders. And one of the things in there would be like, which is, I think, still relevant. You know, the four spiritual laws can be really helpful. The Roman road can be really helpful. I'm also going to have in there like how to do a funeral service. All of those kinds of things. So if something happens to me, then they could do that. What's that? Yeah, that's right. Yeah, well, yeah, I want to hang around a little longer, so God forbid that something would happen to me. But you see what I'm saying? So, yeah, yeah. Oh, sure. No, if you were interested, I would be glad to uh, do a class about how to have a conversation with somebody about coming to faith in Christ. Yeah. Yeah, it's not. Uh, you know, and, and, and so, I mean, you know, again, I grew up in the 1970s and 80s during the fundamentalist movement, and their basic approach was turn or burn. Okay, so that's, what they, that, that's how they would approach to be, you know, and it was kind of like offensive. Or they had, you know, they, what was that... Um, one where they knocked on people's doors and they asked those two questions and what's that? E E. Yeah, thank you. It was E E. Yeah, and so evangelism explosion. So they did that and uh, and and those questions can be helpful, but if you tried to do that today, you would probably get a broken nose if you if you knocked on people's door and, and did something like that. But so yes, I'd be glad to do that. But all I'm saying is. Is that we've we this is this is the this is where we have to go and look this is in keeping with the early church, and you know what the early church lived in a world that is very similar to our own. Very similar ideologically. They were they were um, uh, they were polytheistic. They they all worshipped different gods. They were syncretistic. They blended different kinds of faiths. Uh, into their own kind of faith. They were highly individualized. Um, They were deeply suspicious about the Christian faith. It was very similar to what we experience today. But what these people did was they simply tried to live authentic lives among people who were not authentic. They tried to be Christ-like. So that's why the whole Christ-likeness thing is so important, because what the world needs is Christ, not just us, but Christ. And guess what? Jesus isn't walking on the earth right now. 
I mean, that, that's why this word incarnation is so important. You're familiar with the word incarnation? So incarnation literally means in the flesh. Jesus was made incarnate in the flesh. Christians are now the incarnation of Christ in the world in which we live. This has been true since the inception of the church. So I guess what I want to say is that I want to, I want to take what I have been talking about so far and I want to reseat it in this context so you understand why we're doing it. We're not just doing, I'm not just doing Bible study, but I'm trying to show how important this Bible study is for that particular model. And, uh, and then in addition to that, for us, for us to have an idea about how we're going to live out the balance of our days on this planet. That we live with a great sense of purpose and passion in addition to being parents and grandparents and employees and having our own jobs. But there's this overarching thing that this umbrella upon which we live joyfully and we want to exercise in our life and the world in which we live. So I guess this is kind of more of a conversation than it is a message. But as I was preparing for this morning, I just got this sense like I want to talk about the rest of these texts. But I just felt as if um, as if we kind of had lost why we were doing it. And I don't want to lose why we're doing it. I, I want us to be attuned to like like I'm giving to you. Um, stuff to help everyone here do this and to fill the time in that we have remaining on this earth. Time goes so fast. I feel like I'm 18 years old in my head and every morning I wake up with a new pain and a new ache that I didn't know existed that you could have. You know, my dad used to say that he felt like he had one foot in the grave and the other on a banana peel, you know. And so some of us may feel that way. But I'm not done yet. And you're not done yet. You aren't. If you're still alive, you're still vertical, you're not done yet. And so let's not be done yet together. All right. So I'm going to conclude the service this morning uh, with that. And then I'm just going to pick up where uh, I was going to go. Um, I'll just, I won't even have to print anything out for next week. I'll, I'll be good to go. Um, and I, I would love if you would bring your Bibles. I know I put it up here on the screen, but you know what? I just think we assume a lot about electricity. That it will always be available to us. And that maybe someday we ought to just have our Bible and know how to use it. Right. And so um, bring your Bibles, bring your if you want, bring notebooks or whatever, bring your questions and let's just unpack and pursue and learn all this stuff together. Okay.